0: welcome to cigar city radio episode number 47 i'm your host randy ojeda and making the magic happen mr jason solanez i wish only that you had seen the solar eclipse through my oh it would have been way too dark to see the solar eclipse there are you saying i got dark meat (laughs) the only (laughs) only the dark meat If you've been listening to the show for a while you know that one of our favorite music services is spotify not our only favorite we have lots of favorites shout out title but we do love spotify and we are on spotify so if you are also on spotify you should follow our user account cigar city mgmt on the service we have a number of public playlists where we can help you discover new music new tunes and also follow along with this podcast So you can start with the Cigar City Radio Companion playlist, which features all of the music heard and discussed on this show. You can follow the Tampa Mixtape, which features some of our favorite independent and major bands from the Tampa area. And you can follow our 2017 New Music playlist, which features our top picks in the world of new music from every genre, no matter how popular or how underground. And lastly, you can follow our Cigar City NGMT Popular Tracks playlist, which features popular tracks from the Cigar City MGMT family. How about that? And you can also follow my 90s and 80s playlists, which are kind of fun. The 90s one is called Now That's What I Call 90s. You'll dig it.
1: This episode of Cigar City Radio was recorded at the Blind Tiger in Ybor City. The Blind Tiger is a 1920s speakeasy style coffee shop serving coffee, tea, vegan pastries, and more. With locations in Ebor City and Seminole Heights, you can check them out at BlindTigerCafe.com. One, two, three, four.
0: In case you missed the story on the cover of the Tampa Bay Times. We've partnered up with longtime Tampa rocker Greg Billings to release four classic Stranger albums onto digital music services for the first time. Stranger continues to be one of the most legendary bands from the Tampa area, and we're proud to be a part of continuing their legacy. So right now you can find 1989's No Rules, 1991's No More Dirty Deals, 1993's We Be Live, and 1995's Angry Dogs, From Stranger on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, Amazon, and everywhere else. Our guest on this episode is John Capuya. John is a professor at the University of Tampa, a guest faculty at the Pointer Institute, and a former features editor at Newsweek, New York Newsday, The New York Times, Smart Money Magazine, and more. He's also the author of the Gorgeous George biography, which is being adapted for a feature film. You can pre-order his new book, Florida Soul, from Ray Charles to Casey and the Sunshine Band, now on Amazon. And for more info on his work and links to where you can buy his books, Gorgeous George and Florida Soul... Head to johnkapuya.com. So here it is, episode 47. the arts, which is one of my favorite phrases. Uh, former editor of Newsweek, the New York Times, the resume just goes on and on and on. Right now, we are talking about his upcoming book, which will be out September 12th, called Florida Soul. So, John, first off, how are you doing? Doing good, thanks. Before we get into everything, I just want to make sure that people know what we're talking about when we talk about soul. So, what is soul music in general?
1: Soul music is an African-American art form. Uh Generally thought to be combining gospel and the kind of singing styles that you hear in gospel um, with blues uh, to create rhythm and blues or soul. Um, Later on, there was a kind of a turn and a variation on soul that we now call funk. Okay. Uh, And rhythm and blues, generally speaking, considered to be an earlier form that's more jazzy like Louis Jordan kind of thing, the rhythm and blues, and then Soul was uh, primarily a sung form in which people really emphasized the vocals of people like, if you think of Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, you know, those songs are all about the singing. And rhythm and blues is maybe a little more of an instrumental thing with people like uh, Louis Jordan and uh, the other sort of jump orchestras. See, because
0: when I think of soul, I think of like Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. like that, like Luther Vandross even. Is that all considered soul? As yeah, well? like absolutely. No, yeah. You know, it's pretty distinct from like the rate what Ray Charles was doing, you
1: mm-hmm. know. And some people actually feel like Ray Charles was the real pioneer of soul in that he literally took gospel songs because he grew up uh, actually not a religious guy at all, but loved mm-hmm. going to church because of the singing and the piano playing and he transposed those songs. He just changed the lyrics from being about God to being about a woman. Like I think I got a woman was I've got a savior. Okay. You know? <laughs> and so he made, he put that over Rhythm & Blues uh, musical underpinnings. People got mad at him at the time too. A lot yeah. of people in the church thought this was blasphemy and when he got in a lot of trouble. But ultimately, it was so popular that they had to stand down. You know?
0: That's a, well, yeah. I mean, the music's still around today, and a lot of it is owed to Ray Charles. So he was doing something right, I guess. So, Florida soul. So, where do, where does Florida soul start? Cuz when you think about soul music, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is like Memphis, you know, maybe even Detroit soul or Nashville, you know, I don't really think about Florida as being a a den of soul music. So, what where where does that come from?
1: Right. I I didn't think that way either. So, the the book is really an evolution of uh my coming down here from New York to teach at the University of Tampa. And I grew up listening to soul music in New York and in New Jersey. And then when I came down here, honestly, I didn't even know Ray Charles was from Florida. I, thought I didn't know he was either. He sang Georgia on my mind. So I figured, oh, the guy's from Georgia. But yeah. he was born there. But it turns out he moved to Florida when he was six months old. Oh, and wow. so uh, what I came to find out is a lot of the artists that I listened to and I enjoyed, you know, driving around on the AM radio in the car uh, back in the day, that these were Florida artists. So the book actually starts with Ray Charles in the mid-1940s when he got out of the St. Augustine School for the Deaf and Blind, where he learned to read music in Braille and he got a lot of musical training. Yeah. He had his first gigs in Jacksonville and Orlando and here in Tampa. Uh, And I actually found some people here in Tampa around Ybor City who worked with him back in the day and I was able to interview them. Uh, There's a tenor saxophone player named Ernie Calhoun and a trumpeter named Frank Shellman and They've got pictures of them and Ray Charles. So, you know, it's true. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't
0: Photoshop um, in the 1940s. I don't
1: think so, no. (laughs) And, you know, they're pretty convincing. So the book starts with them and then it kind of goes chronologically through some of the other great artists. Uh, For example, Sam and Dave recorded on Stax Records in Memphis. Mm -hmm. So people don't tend to think of them as a Florida artist, but they were, you know, great soul duo who did Soul Man and Hold On, I'm Coming. I Thank You Other big hits. Uh, Sam Moore grew up in Overtown, the black neighborhood in Miami, met Dave Prater there, who's from Georgia and they formed this duo and they got their early training and had their early success. And then when they started to get successful and got some notice, the people in Memphis, you know, reached out to them and they went to Stacks. So there are a few artists who people associate with other places like you mentioned in Detroit, maybe New Orleans is another yeah, sole capital. Sure. Everybody knows Memphis, um, But as it turns out, a lot of these people have Florida origins and Florida roots and became musicians and singers in this state.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know you told us that in in your book. You got to interview Sam Moore in his home. Did you actually go to Arizona to interview him? Yeah, he
1: was living in Arizona at the time. He's Mm -hmm. since moved back to Miami, and I saw him perform. The guy still sounds great. He was in his 70s. Now he's 80.
0: Um,
1: And he actually explained to me one of the most interesting things about his interview, I thought, was... He talked to me about sort of his evolution as a singer and the craft. He said early in the day, Dave and I were just shouting and we were gospel preaching up there and we were sweating and we were dancing. And he said, but I can't do that anymore, you know? So I don't have that kind of shouting voice and I can't dance anymore. And he said, so I've actually tried to become more of a singer and I studied other singers like Sinatra and Tony Bennett and people like that. And he talked about how his craft has evolved, which I thought, it was kind of cool. I mean, I knew about his history as a part of that soul duo. Yeah. Um, so I tried to get out of the people who were well known something other than that which they were totally well known for. And in that case, that's that's what I got out of Sam.
0: Yeah, that's cool that he's still making music and that he's you know focused on growing as an artist rather than just playing soul man. You know, every time he gets on stage, yeah. which I'm sure he probably yeah. still does too. You know,
1: this was a couple of years ago, and I asked him uh well who do you want would you want to work with who you never work with and he said oh Gladys Knight. you know i love her somehow we just never and then i said so who are the young soul people of today who you think are doing a decent job and he's like amy amy one this is before she died he's yeah. like he said amy's a freak and he said i said well, what do you mean she's a freak and he said she could sing the phone book and it would sound great like she's <laughs> super super talented and you know, I, th- I think she was, but I, I was kind of surprised that he had he had performed with her apparently. Mm-hmm. And he thought she was really, really talented. Wow, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah.
0: Who are some of the other like contemporary soul singers that are, you know, considered soul?
1: Uh, well, you know? I, I came across a guy from South Florida um, who, who goes by Urban Mystic. okay, And he's kind of a more of like a, most of what he does is like today's R&B, like more kind of like an usher thing which I'm not a huge fan of, uh, but he also is kind of a soul revivalist and he has an album called Soulful Classics in which he covers some of the old songs and he can really sing. Um, yeah. His father was a preacher and he grew up listening to that music. And so I feature him at the end of my book. There's an epilogue in which I talk about uh, what's going on in Florida soul and who's keeping it alive. And he's one of them. There are some older people who are still performing in their 70s, uh, including... There's a guy who goes by Little Jake Mitchell, and his band is the Soul Searchers. All right. He's from Tampa. He's got to be seventy-something. He's not, he's up in Gainesville now, so he's coming down to play a gig at the Palladium Theater in St. Petersburg uh, at their side door cabaret in late October, and we're going to have an event together because he's featured in the book also as a guy who's been doing this from the '40s to you know 2017.
0: That's such a long time. Though. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, he started very young. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he was, when he was Little Jake Mitchell. Yeah, Little Jake Mitchell. It's yeah. Yeah. such a good soul name, too. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, like a child prodigy, apparently, so.
0: Right on. And I know you mentioned, too, you know, you mentioned Casey and the Sunshine Band. That's pretty different from Ray Charles, but still considered soul. And that's kind of, Casey and the Sunshine Band, I mean, with the name alone, is, sounds like a Florida thing, you know.
1: They are, but I didn't know that, you know. I just thought, yeah, oh, Sunshine Band, you know, I didn't yeah. think about it. That's Miami. That's why they're the Suddish prime band. And I interviewed Harry Wayne Casey, who was yeah. Casey, still performing. And, you know, you can't go to a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something now and not hear those songs, you know. Um, and they were an interracial band and also a multi-ethnic band. They had African-American people, also Latin people in that band. And the thing I found out about him that I tried to put kind of a different spin on because everybody knows Casey and Get Down Tonight and those songs. Yeah. They were originally called the Sunshine Junkanoo Band. Junkanoo is a kind of Bahamian music ah. that was popular in the Bahamian community in the 60s and 70s when KC was living there, and involves a lot of horns, a lot of whistles, a lot of cowbells, and that sound. So they originally, he and his partner Rick Finch, originally tried to create that Junkanoo Bahamian sound. Then they put kind of their own rhythm and blues, you know, spin on it. Uh, obviously very successful. Yeah. Uh, so I I talked a little, I write a little bit about that. And I also, I interviewed the guy who did all the horn arrangements for KC and the Sunshine Band, which is a big part of their sound. And so the chapter ends up being kind of about the art of arranging for horns and the different voicings and what you could do. Uh, because I just felt like to tell the story of KC and go like, well, hey, you know, they're really successful. Wouldn't be that, Revealing, yeah. Uh,
0: the horn arrangements in general, especially with Casey and the Sunshine Band, but in a lot of soul bands, was that's a really big part yeah. of the sound,
1: right? Including the Stax Records people, uh, Sam and Dave, uh, the horns on there, and Otis Redding, the horns. They had it's a it's a great sound. Sam Moore, to go back to him for a second, he said to me, "The horn section in our recordings is like the congregation in the black church, like." we would sing or say something and they would respond like the call and response between the preacher and the congregation. So obviously they were really an integral part, you know, uh, of their sound.
0: Yeah, that's really, I never really thought about it that way, but that makes perfect sense. That sort of give and take between the the vocals Mm -hmm. and the horns, you know, because a lot of times, yeah, the horns are sort of not really duplicating the melody that they're singing, but they're, you know,
1: uh, what's the word? They I'm have, for? Well, they have their own parts, so they yeah. respond, you know, so yeah, they complement yeah. each other. Yeah, complimenting. That's yeah. the word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's with an E. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, my Casey, my quick Casey and the Sunshine Band story is actually probably had to have been at least 15 years ago now when the Citrus Park Mall opened. First opened, Casey and the Sunshine Band performed at the opening, the grand ce- opening celebration, and my aunt caught the the drumstick. Actually, yeah, wow. yeah. So I'm sure, I hope she has it still. Yeah. She's listening to this, Dia. If you still got it, you know, I'm sure it's uh <laughs> you know, you got that Casey and the Sunshine Band drumstick. But yeah, that I was, I was, you know, much younger, obviously, when when I saw that performance, and even then, I was like, this is this band is awesome, and as old as they were, they were still really you know, giving
1: it their all and really, really energetic. They're very tight. You know, another thing I found out that actually there's a producer or guy who was since deceased named Henry Stone, who actually spans the whole chronicle of this book in that he recorded early Ray Charles songs in Miami in like 1950. And he even recorded early Sam and Dave. And he recorded many of the other artists who are in my book like Betty Wright and Lattimore and Timmy Thomas. And he recorded Casey in the Sunshine Band. Harry Wayne Casey and Rick Finch were like clerks and young guys working in his studio, like filling orders and, and you know taking records to the record store. And wow. he let them you know develop and let them into the studio. And so, this one guy who also I had never heard of before I came down to here, he is really the kingpin. He's like the Barry Gordy, you know, the Motown founder of Florida Soul. And I didn't know that person existed, but he had a huge influence on soul music in this country and all over the world, based on the music that he put out. Uh, and, and his studio is in Miami. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. so I met, I, I interviewed him several times, and uh, we have a, a portrait of him that we took in the book. And then he he died like a couple of years back. Oh so. man.
0: Yeah. So he was really, yeah, so like you said, the Barry Gordon of, yeah. of soul, not just Florida soul, but just kind of soul in general. Well, by right? virtue
1: I mean, of, you know, putting out KC and the Sunshine Band and all of these other hits, even as it sort of, the Miami soul sound kind of veered into disco with KC. And there were this, uh, there was a big song called Rock Your Baby. And there was another one called Rockin' Chair, one by Gwen McCrae, another by George McRae. There were huge international hits. And so, his reach kind of extended, you know, beyond Florida and also really into Europe and other parts of the world, you know.
0: So why Florida? Like of all places for, you know, the, for Soul to come from, why, why Florida?
1: Well, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out and <laughs> asked a lot of people that question. Um, you know, on the most basic level, after World War II, the population of Florida like exploded and particularly like GIs who had served and had been at Florida bases thought this is a good place to live and it's cheap and they liked it here. So they poured in, including a lot of African American people. Um, It did have, I think the third or fourth biggest African American population in the country at the time, well, like in the 1960 Mm -hmm. census. Um, Another thing that people mentioned to me that might've been an advantage is that, uh, there were a lot of seasonal agricultural workers here, like people who cut the cane in the south and people who picked the tomatoes up here. And they would all wanted entertainment every Friday, and Saturday night. After they got through with this backbreaking labor, they would go to these juke joints and they were put, you know, a couple of dollars down to hear some music. So there was a big chitlin circuit, as they call it. You know, when in segregation, uh, in the black neighborhoods, they had their own clubs where black performers perform them to only black audiences. And this is a national circuit, but as it turns out, Florida has like one of the longest stretches of this circuit on which musicians can reliably make money. Like by going from, you know, Pensacola to Tallahassee to Jacksonville, to Orlando, to Tampa, to St. Pete, to Bradenton, to (laughs) Miami. Apparently only Texas had a longer trail. Um, So it supported a lot of bands um, in a way that some other states couldn't. People would say, well, let's just do the Florida circuit. Um, Another reason that uh, several of the artists themselves cited was that the FAMU, the Florida Agricultural Mechanical University, their jazz program and their marching band, like they turned out a lot of highly trained and very skilled musicians, some of whom are in my book. Um, There's a saxophone player named Noble Watts who came out of there and uh, Noble Thin Band Watts. And uh, there's a producer in Miami who was part of the first black-owned record company in Florida, as far as we know, which was called Deep City Records. And this guy, Willie Clark, and his partner, Johnny Pearsall, both went to FAMU and were in the music program. Uh, so I think that was that was part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one aspect also that in the... South of Florida, there's a Caribbean influence, including the Junkanoo music uh, that maybe gave some more vibrancy to the soul music produced there that other states, you know, that aren't near the Caribbean don't have. Yeah, well, know? that's
0: probably where a lot of the horn players came from, you know, Cubans and, yeah. and you know, Dominicans and other people. You guys
1: probably don't remember because you're younger, but there was a big hit in the 70s called Funky Nassau, and it was a very <laughs> no, super horn-driven know. song uh, by a, a band had a strange name called the beginning of the end. I don't know why that was, called <laughs> uh, but they, yeah. uh, they were a Caribbean band that this guy, Henry stone recorded. And it was, it was a big hit. You should check it out though. On, check it out online. It's a really a good song. Uh, right on. So, yeah. yeah.
0: The beginning uh, yeah. of the end. Yeah. Sounds so like,
1: obviously uh-huh. they're from the Bahamas, you know, from funky Nassau. Um, yeah, yeah. So those are some of the reasons that I was able to figure out. And I think some of it is luck. I mean, look, Ray Charles is a genius. He was born that way. Apparently, nobody in his family was a singer or a musician. Wow. He turned out to be like a genius. Yeah. So, you know, hey, he could have stayed in Georgia, but he didn't. So, you know, yeah. So the point is, I'm claiming him.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Why, yeah. Didn't, why wasn't it Florida on my mind? I guess that doesn't have the same kind of well, like, ring. <laughs> he
1: well, he didn't write that song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hoagy Carmichael, who's from Georgia, wrote the song. Yeah, ah. so.
0: But this isn't your first book, so I just want to talk a little bit, too, about uh, the Gorgeous George mm. book that you wrote. And that the, the full title of that, so <laughs> make sure I get it right, is G- Gorgeous George, the Outrageous Bad Boy Wrestler Who Created American Pop Culture. That's a very strong claim. Right. To, for, well, so I'm a big wrestling nerd, you know? Oh. So um, I was all about the fact that you wrote a book on mm. Gorgeous George. Yep. And it's a, it is a kind of amazing to see how the character that he had it really influenced other other mediums besides wrestling. So I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that,
1: too. For well, sure. The first thing you got to understand is writers don't create those subtitles. I don't believe that Gorgeous George <laughs> it, he, that he invented pop culture. That is yeah. a stretch. Yeah. But my editor felt like, well, it was the kind of outrageous brag and lie that Gorgeous George would say. So let's go with it. That but is true. Uh, I guess, but the reason I, I actually didn't know anything about professional wrestling uh, and the reason I got interested in him is I saw a documentary about Muhammad Ali in which he said that when he was 19 years old and he was still Cassius Clay, uh, he met Gorgeous George the wrestler who was saying things like, I'm the prettiest, I'm the greatest, I'm going to kill that guy because I'm the greatest wrestler of all time. And they met and George said to him, well, listen, you know, you have a mouth on you, kid. You could do this too. And people would pay to see you get your ass beat, you know, and he obviously, (laughs) obviously he did. And and he, he, for the rest of his life, he credited George with telling him how to be always be outrageous, brag, be loud. Any attention is good attention. And it worked. Obviously, he had the talent to back it up. Right. So I was digesting that when uh, I read a memoir by James Brown, the great soul singer. And he said, uh, when I saw the wrestler Gorgeous George on television, I loved the flamboyance that he added to his act by wearing these fancy robes. And he had this guy who would run out into the ring and take care of him like a butler character or Jeeves uh, (laughs) or a valet. And so then James Brown started wearing these capes and robes in his live oh, no. performances. And he hired a guy who was known forever as the Cape Man, who would run <laughs> out with the cape. So George had this guy who would run out, like, bring, serve him tea between rounds of the wrestling matches yeah, yeah, yeah. and he would spray perfume wherever George was going to walk. So he wouldn't step <laughs> on anything. Yeah, you know, it was pretty hilarious. Oh, Gordon George, George yeah. is the greatest. You know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I think the wrestling was kind of anticlimactic after yeah. all of this, you know, this, this act, the gimmick as they call it. Yeah. So I thought, wow, Muhammad Ali, James Brown. I mean, I've been admiring these people, you know, the legendary performers. And then the strangest one of all was in Bob Dylan's memoir. He talks about when he was, little Bobby Zimmerman back in Minnesota, and he was trying to be a musician, and nobody wanted to listen to his band or his atrocious singing voice, let's face it. Right? <laughs> sure. He wasn't yeah. having any success. He was about to quit. And then a chance meeting with Gorgeous George, the wrestler who came to Hibbing to wrestle, inspired him for years to come. And I thought, wait a minute, Muhammad Ali, James Brown, Bob Dylan. Who is this guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the book is, it's a biography about George and I obviously did learn a fair amount about professional wrestling, but it's really kind of a pop culture analysis of how he created both this kind of quasi-effeminate androgynous thing to push people's button and this super arrogant villain, the guy you love to hate, and we see that in sports now and people go around calling themselves the greatest of all time. And, um, obviously in wrestling, that whole thing has continued and you see people wearing boas and acting effeminate and yeah, putting yeah. makeup on. And, you know, that's a trope, but I think it's, it, it's in the rest of the culture as well. Uh, obviously Bob Dylan, did didn't take any showmanship techniques from gorgeous George. No, but, but it, he it said, would have been amazing if he had, he, yeah, he was, he was going to quit and go, he said, if he, if he quit, he was either gonna go to West Point, join the military, wow. strange, or go work in the iron mines, which is what you do in the north of Minnesota. That's what goes on up there. So it was a pretty amazing thing for him to say. And you know, he maintains it to this day. Wow. What a
0: different world it would have been mm-hmm. if he had quit. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And yeah. he can credit that to Gorgeous George. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. He thought somehow like a look passed between them. I'm sure this didn't happen, and Gorgeous George was just hung over like he always was. Uh, (laughs) And that he thought that George was saying to him silently that he recognized him as a fellow performer and that he could do a similar thing and that he had charisma too. Wow. I doubt it. But yeah, if, yeah. If it, if Bob it, Dylan did a lot of drugs yeah. back then too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. But if it inspired him, and it, it inspired him, so that was yeah. the yeah. genesis of that book.
0: Yeah. That is that is awesome. Yeah. So definitely, listeners, check that book out too. So Florida Soul comes out September twelfth. You're making the rounds, right? What are, What are some of the events mm-hmm. and and places people can see? Yeah, you I have
1: some fun things lined up. You know, the book's uh, it's already up on Amazon, and it should be in the stores by the time we air this. So uh, I'm gonna do. Uh, In November, the Tampa Bay Times has their annual festival of reading and I'm going to give a talk there. And uh, when I do these talks, I'm not going to do their usual reading, uh, which I think can get boring and people just look down at their book and drone. So I'm going to play music and I'm going to show pictures and stuff. So it'll be a multimedia experience. and uh, so I'm going to do the Tampa Bay Times Festival of Reading. Uh, I'm going to be in the Miami Book Fair in November, which is kind of a big deal in the, all the bookseller world. Um, and I know there's going to be some press coming out in some of the local publications. And uh, I, I think I mentioned on October 27th, there's a gig at the Palladium Theater in St. Pete with Little Jake and the Soul Searchers, a great Gainesville band, big horn section. I mean, it's an eight-piece band. I mean, they're really going to—they're really good. And we're going to do an event together at the Palladium Theater in their downstairs um, side door cabaret, which is a great place to hear music. And uh, so that's kind of what I know about um, already. And there'd probably be some more things um, as, you know, the book kind of gains steam. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: So, I mean, I, I can't wait to read it. We weren't given an advanced copy, John. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> but, uh-huh.
1: I, but I'm looking forward
0: yeah. to digging into it. Well, and, you could
1: get yeah. your advanced copy by going to Amazon and paying $19. <laughs> and then, oh, I will. And, I will. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you have Prime, it'll be there in two days. So oh, that, hey, yeah. there,
0: I do yeah. have Prime, and yeah. I will. That's, that's okay. awesome. Yeah. Great. Uh, any uh, final thoughts, comments for the Cigar City Radio listeners?
1: No, I, I just I want to thank you guys for having me on. And, you know, since your cigar city, there, there's an Ebor connection, you know, the, to several of the chapters in this book. Um, oh, tell us. The chapter about Ray Charles focuses mostly on when he was here, working with these two musicians I interviewed, who, who are still alive and still live in Ebor City. Um, they talk about the different venues that they played at, like the Cuban Patio out in back of the Cuban Club, and they were in Manzi Harris's orchestra and other bands here. Um, and Little Jake Mitchell uh, grew up singing here also. And so there's a heavy Tampa uh, and even Ybor City component to the book. So for you, Cigar City aficionados, you know, might be worth a look for that reason. That's super awesome.
0: I'm just gonna I'm just gonna imagine that Ray Charles was hanging out here and you know, where, yeah. where, walking the steps where I'm walking, you know, well,
1: and apparently one of the things that the, the tenor saxophone player who worked with him said was, everyone was amazed at how he got around by himself. <laughs> And once he took him somewhere once, he memorized it. So they said, so we would be practicing at one of the clubs here. You know, there was a Palladium here. There was a Cotton Club here. There was a Savoy. All of these places are named after clubs in Harlem, in New York. And they said, so we're practicing at the Cuban patio too. And he'd just walk from where he was staying to the thing by himself, you know. and, and What wow. uh, uh, a yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then another one of the uh, musicians who worked with him said he would uh, – He had a bicycle, and someone who could see would sit on the handlebars and tell him, like, Ray, left, left, you know. And so they would get around that way too.
0: I just wanted to hear what you think about this statement. Hmm? Cows are the silent jury in the trial of mankind.
1: <laughs> I couldn't really speak to that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm from New York. I don't know from cows. You know, so, uh. no, that's fair. <laughs> okay. <laughs>